0: Hey, welcome to the Word Weaver Podcast, a place dedicated to the powerful web words weave and the deep layers they uncover. Here you'll find a compilation of tips, tricks, and words of wisdom from writers, authors, creatives, and entrepreneurs. Basically, cool people doing cool things in the world, and how they've used words as weapons of mass creation and inspiration. You'll also hear from me, your host, Louise Johnson. I'm a former marketing maven in New York and Switzerland, Hello out there! You are listening to chapter 23 of the WordWeaver podcast. Today you'll hear my sit-down conversation with Ben McNally. He is the legendary bookseller behind Toronto's Most Beautiful Bookstore and his namesake, Ben McNally Books. The shop opened back in 2007 at 366 Bay Street in Toronto's Financial District And we had the opportunity to chat over coffee inside this stunning shop under the 14-foot ceilings, large columns, with the gorgeous mahogany bookshelves as our backdrop. So that being said, you might hear a few sirens in the background, and at the end, one of his regular customers comes into the shop and talks to us for a minute. So don't mind all of that as you're listening to this chapter. I was really excited when I reached out to Ben and honored that he would actually take the time to sit down and speak with me. He has been in the book business for over four decades and is somewhat akin to what a celebrity chef would be in the restaurant industry to the Canadian literary scene. Independent bookstores have long been thought of a dying breed, especially in the Amazon age, and even big box superstores like Indigo you'll see are dedicating more of their retail space to houseware goods than books to stay afloat. Over the years, many indie bookshops have been forced to shut their doors. They're kind of seeing a bit of a renaissance like vinyl has over the past couple of years, but somehow Ben throughout all of this has managed to stay competitive. He credits that to building trusting, loyal, and long-lasting relationships with his customers, something that he fears as being lost in our overstimulated, technology-driven world. As Ben likes to say, on the internet, you can find what you're looking for. In our store, you can find what you're not looking for. Today, we discuss everything from how he went from parking cars at the CNE, the Canadian National Exhibition, to being at the forefront of the literary industry, to his stance on why books are sexy again. There was just something about being in a bookstore on a quiet, snowy morning, talking to Ben, that truly gave me a sense of calm. It was a magical conversation with a very magical man that I'm so happy to have on tape to listen back to someday. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy. I
1: had a wait with words for a while.
0: So, Ben, welcome to the Word Weaver podcast. <laughs> We're sitting here in your beautiful store on a freezing minus 20 day.
2: So we shouldn't be interrupted by any customers. That'll be the good news. Exactly. Well, I don't know do. how good that is.
0: You've been in the book business for 30 years. More than Maybe that. Since the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Almost over 40 years. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to age you. <laughs> Was it always a dream of yours to open your own bookstore? How did no. this journey start?
2: It was never my dream to open my own bookstore. I've never been compelled to be in business for myself. I was quite happy to be a salary man. I was never looking for responsibility, particularly. Um, The only reason I ever became a manager of a bookstore was because my then boss fired my manager Mm -hmm. and said, do you want to be manager? And I said, no. (coughs) And he said, well, because if you don't, then I'm going to hire somebody who you don't know who might li- not like you to be your boss. Right. So I said, okay, well, all right, maybe I should be a manager. I'll take the job. And that was that, yeah. I came out of school and went to work at Coles bookstores. And then I became the manager of something called the Bookseller, which was also at Young & Charles, it was very interesting. And then when I left, I went to work in a parking lot at the exhibition for 16 years, and that was interrupted briefly um, when I, with somebody else, opened uh, a small chain of bookstores called Fleet Books, which was eventually bought by W.H. Smith.
0: Have you always had a love of literature because it seems that even with Coles, you started working at bookstores very early?
1: Yeah. Well, it was the only yeah
2: I mean, I loved books from the time I was very, very little. My mother used to read to me, and my father used to read to me, so that was it. For me, books were always um, uh, almost magical.
0: And then what led you eventually to open your own bookstore here on Bay Street, Ben McNally Books?
2: Well, I was working I was working on Front Street for a guy named Nicholas Hoare, who lived in Montreal. So for all intents and purposes, aside from the occasional intervention from him, um, I was on my own. And then he he decided that he had to sell his business. And, you know, he... There, was, there were obviously problems with that. Like, There's no reason anybody would ever buy a bookstore because if they really wanted one, they could open one next door. Right. And, and I mean, really, of all the bookstores that I ever worked in, Nicholas Hoare was the one that had the most cachet. It was the most, was the most likely that somebody would actually pay money to take it over.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But uh, interestingly enough, some people had approached me maybe a year before that and asked me if I'd ever wanted to go into business for myself, and I said, no. And they said, well, if you ever do, let us know, because, you know, we think that what you do is very important, and, you know, like, if you, if you wanted to do it on your own, we would be prepared to uh, support you financially in that effort. I said, you know, that's very kind of you, but, you know, I don't need to stay up late at night wondering about administrative things and You know, like, I don't need that kind of headache, necessarily. But then Nicholas Hoare said he was going to sell his business. And so then that put me in an unusual situation because, because, you know, for all intents and purposes, I had been the face of his bookstore in Toronto uh, from the time it had opened. So if somebody's going to buy it, were they assuming that I was part of the package?
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And you know, here I am in the same situation I was when I became manager of a book city. Or were they going to take it over and then have no need for me whatsoever?
1: Right.
2: So, uh, so I, you know, and, and uh, you know, fortunately, the idea of selling a bookstore was, is not really a great one, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier. And so I just let that go for a year. And then Nicholas Horne came back to me and said, OK, I really have to sell my business. I've been advised by my financial advisors that I should get rid of this business. I went to Nicholas Horne and said, OK, like, I might be interested in buying your store, in buying this particular store. Um, how much, how much do you, how much do you want for it? I said, I know how much money comes in, mm-hmm. but I don't really know how much money goes out because I wasn't in charge of
0: the that
2: administrative side of things. And he would never address that. And in fact he never did come clean to me about any of those things and, and in fact only after I opened this place he told Toronto Life that I would not have been able to afford his bookstore. He just closed his bookstore. He didn't sell it. He didn't do anything. He just packed yeah. it in and left. Yeah. That's how I ended up having my own bookstore. And, you know, people, people would say to me, okay, like, what's the best thing about having your own bookstore?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I used to say, well, the best thing is that I don't have to deal with Nicholas Hoare anymore. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's not necessarily a criticism of Nicholas Hoare, but... Like if I, had a pro- if I have a problem here, mm-hmm. then it's my problem until I either solve it or decide that it isn't really that important. Yeah. So it takes me you know, maybe a minute and a half to solve any pressing problem. Whereas when I was working for Nicholas if I had a problem, then I would have to solve that problem. Then I would have to justify it to him.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I would have to listen to him criticize me for what I had done, yeah. you know, in some cases interminably. And also, like, if I had a particularly unexpected success, sometimes that would irk him even more. So then I would have to kind of listen to him complaining about something which had been beneficial to us both. And so, so for me, that whole thing about not having a boss turned out to be something that I that I hadn't really expected to be quite as liberating as it turned out to be. And to his credit, he basically left me alone, but yeah. but he couldn't stop kind of carping every now and then because in a lot of cases because he wasn't there, because he didn't have he didn't have that kind of face-to-face experience with what was going on. Mm-hmm. He didn't know who our customers were. He didn't know, you know, that the reason that we were successful was because we engaged people one-to-one. It's the kind of thing that that we do here, and people are very surprised because they consider it really old-fashioned. But you know, for me, it's like, that's how you run a business. You run a business face-to-face, and, mm-hmm. and you try to get on a relationship basis with your customers, right, and I with your suppliers, and everybody else. So. Yeah.
0: Which I think people don't do enough of. That's kind of the beauty of bookstores, the face-to-face
1: relationship.
2: If you live in a neighborhood, that's one of the great things about Toronto, and one of the, one of the really dire aspects about online shopping is that if you live in a neighborhood, you should really know the merchants that you deal with on a regular basis. Even if you go to a Loblaws, if you go to a Loblaws every week, there's no reason why you wouldn't get to know some of the people who work in Loblaws and say, hey, you know what, like, do you have any more of this somewhere where I can't see it? So, you know, and that's like a Loblaws. If you've got independent merchants, if you go to your cheese store, I and mean, if you have a cheese store in your neighborhood, if you have a a haberdasher in your neighborhood if you buy women's clothes at in your neighborhood mm-hmm. then i mean really all the benefits that you have from having a relationship with that merchant come back to get you and and you know like that's really a beneficial that's a win-win situation that's for you and the merchant because you get the kind of service that you know under normal circumstances you should expect
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it's a there's a personal level to it that i think is you know sadly well, it's impossible to match if you're buying online.
0: Absolutely. Public perception over the past 20 years has been that independent bookstores are a dying breed. How have you managed to stay competitive throughout all of that? What do you think the success of Ben McNally Books has been?
2: Well, we were, we were pretty optimistic when we opened. Like 2007, we had really high expectations for what kind of business we were going to do. And I don't know if you remember, but in 2008 the entire universe fell into a black hole. Oh, I
1: remember. And, uh,
2: and so, you know, I, I think that probably 250,000 people within a five-block radius of here mm-hmm. were adversely affected. Either they lost their jobs or they were worried about losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, like th- those were dire times. We had shed a lot of staff. We'd, had it, we'd taken a different approach to managing our inventory. We didn't make any money. We, I think we may have actually broken even last year. We might have actually turned a bit of a profit. But for us, it's basically been a matter of trying not to lose too much money over the course of 11 years now.
0: Well, it seems, and you mentioned even last year that you turned a bit of a profit. The last couple of years, I keep reading that there's the renaissance of vinyl and books are becoming back in style again people are kind of putting their e-readers away and buying physical books again why do you think books are sexy again what is it in the past few years
2: you know the renaissance in bookstores has a lot to do with that crash in 2008 and it's very much an american phenomenon compared to a canadian phenomenon i mean you know it's actually taking place here but not to the extent it is in the united states and what happened a lot of very thriving, actually reasonably large sized cities had neighborhoods that were totally blighted by the economic crash. So, you know, people were getting space at very, very manageable rent levels. Because if you're a landlord and you've got, you're, you're sitting on, like, uh, let's say, a city block that's got maybe two stores on it, somebody wants to open a bookstore. Well, the bookstore is a really good for, forward indicator for a neighborhood. So you've got a bookstore, well, you might as well have like, at least a coffee shop.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And if you've got a bookstore and a coffee shop, you might as well have a restaurant. And now suddenly, if you've got a bookstore and a coffee shop and a restaurant, people who are forward thinking in terms of property, bookstores are bookstores a are pretty good investment from a landlord standpoint. In Canada, we didn't have that same kind of effect of the crash. So, so for us and for bookstores all throughout Canada, rent is the problem like it's not a book business problem it's a rent problem it's a it's a retail space problem in terms of amazon like i always said to people amazon is not a book problem amazon is a neighborhood problem because you know amazon amazon used books as a as a wedge to get into people's heads books were always sexy they were sexy enough that amazon used books to crack open delivery to your neighborhood, to, right to your house. Books never lost their appeal. In fact, you know, to a certain extent, they may have even increased their appeal all the time when people thought that they were actually a failing enterprise. In terms of that, you know, books, books have never really lost that luster. When I was a kid, my mother used to come to me on a Saturday and say, like, what the hell are you doing in the house? <laughs> yeah it's sunny out there it's warm why are you sitting here i said i'm reading my book will you leave me alone <laughs> because because you know books for me were like the, i told you this kind of magical thing and i think i think that as people are consistently assailed by by digital interruption by digital sort of uh, irritations like you know like here comes another email, here comes, you know, here's an update from some stupid, you know, you know every two
1: seconds. whatever, yeah.
2: well then, a book is an escape from that. Like, so reading online, like reading on your e-reader, that is not really reading. That's just connectedness as far as I'm concerned. I think that for young people now, growing up, if you can get them onto books when they're young, like, for me, the most appalling thing is watching young children play with, Yes. electronic devices because that becomes that becomes your go-to escape yeah. and I mean you're not escaping for them you're escaping you're just getting yourself further and further into yeah. this maelstrom of non-stop connectedness so I'd say to people you know read to your kids read to your kids from the time that they're that they're they can move their hands
0: in terms of the Canadian literary landscape from my, an author perspective, I know how arduous that process is to write a book, and how little financial return I get from the writer end. So for me, from the outside looking in, it seems like there's not as many emerging authors in Canada. You're on the inside, I'm hoping you can prove me wrong. What, what do you think the Canadian literary landscape is like? Are there actually more emerging voices?
2: You know, it's interesting because we live right next door to a very gargantuan economy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because of those economies of scale, we would not survive. Canadian book business, Canadian magazine publishing, Canadian <laughs> film, Canadian art, every cultural aspect to our society could only exist with government intervention, with government support. Yeah. So, so, yes, we get government, I mean, I don't, and I think, I think that would be a great step if the government were to recognize that bookstores do perform a vital service. So there are lots of emerging voices in Canada, but what they emerge into, that's the real question. So, you know, like if you're, if you're talented, you can get published. If you, have a, if you have a good idea for a book, you're going to be able to get it published. and. And, you know, you may get it published in Canada. You may get it published in the United States. You know, if you talk to somebody like Margaret Atwood, who at one point was, was an emerging writer, like nobody knew who she was, um, and look where she is now. When, when I started out, that would have been almost, almost incomprehensible that somebody could have that kind of success yeah. writing books as a Canadian. Margaret Atwood grew up in Leaside, and wanted to be a poet well good luck with that fortunately for her she came along at a time when um, the Canadian government thought that you know maybe maybe it would be an investment if we kind of gave people some support who wanted to be writers now there wasn't a lot of support it wasn't like it wasn't like you could sort of keep living Mm -hmm. but you could get some payment if you wrote a book yeah and and a bit of encouragement, things like that. She deserves every success Absolutely. that she has, and so intellectually engaged mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. that I love Margaret Atwood. I, I can't ever say enough so, about her. I mean, yeah. there are people, you know, Margaret Atwood's not the only one, but there are still not a lot. I mean, it's not it's not something that that you would do because you wanted to get rich. It's like opening a bookstore, and people are constantly coming to me saying. You know, hey, I want to write a book. Do you have any advice to me? (laughs) And I'd say, don't quit your day job. That's it. I mean, you know, if you've got a paycheck, cherish that paycheck. You know, there may come a time when, when you can say, hey, you know what? I don't need to do this anymore, or you can step off into the void and say, well, I'm not really going to ever become a serious writer until I, until I take the big chance. But as far as I'm concerned, like Alice Munro, I first met Alice Munro, and I said, well, how, do, how does this work out? And she said, you know, I wait till the kids go to bed, and then I write.
0: So at the bookstore level, who are you finding is your typical customer coming in? Who is it, the neighborhood, the financial district? Do you think the location of the bookstore is part and parcel of the success? And are people coming and asking for recommendations, or are they coming in with, hey, do you have this book? I saw it online.
2: When I first came into this empty space with a dangling light socket,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I said, okay. And, and I'd looked at, you know, my real estate guys had taken me around. We looked at like six or seven places. And they said, what are your top three? And I said, Bay Street, Bay Street, and Bay Street. I, you know, <laughs> I, this is the one that I want. And it was because I thought, okay, like people don't live here because there's no place for them to live I mean right. at that point the whole condo thing was just kind of just starting to get started yeah. but there are all kinds of people here during the day so I'm not going to have to tailor myself to a neighborhood that I'm not really sure of we were looking at Leslieville yes and I thought you know what Leslieville is like a little bit too far in the future before it's going to be viable so where do I want to be I want in a place in a place that's where lots of people are working, they're, they're pulling down a paycheck. In a lot of cases where they read for a living, because they got a paycheck, they're not only going to be buying books to read, but they're going to be buying books to give to people. So, you know, like if you're in a neighborhood, quite often you find yourself doing what big bookstores do, only a smaller scale. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to run an unusual bookstore. I wanted to run a bookstore that... that had books that weren't anywhere else and i thought this was the perfect place for it there's this misperception and it's very interesting that lawyers and judges and bankers are men that's not the case
0: i love that you said
2: that right i mean it's, people say you know well but like what do those guys do down there and i say, well those men and women down there yeah. are pretty smart and they're looking for a challenge and like people said what well, are you going to sell business books i said no, because most of the people down there are pretty astute at business, right? Yeah, you know, they, they don't might. Need a book on it. Yeah, they, they, they don't need like nuts and bolts books about running a business. Yeah. I knew what I was doing, but people on the outside said, like, pastry, like what a stupid idea that is. They
0: were so confused.
2: So who was our average customer? You know, probably somebody over the age of forty for sure, and in fact, in a lot of cases, over fifty or sixty. Yeah. Who was sophisticated and reasonably affluent
0: you've seen younger people as well
2: well interestingly enough you know my kids my kids Connolly, who worked for me um my son rupert especially said you know like okay we're missing out on like people say you know like you don't have a twitter account you know i said no i know of course not like what can we do in 140 characters because people say you know like how would you describe your books or i said come on in that's it I don't like how can I describe my bookstore I want my bookstore to be what you're interested in anyway my kids came I don't know two or three years ago and said okay we're gonna do Instagram we're gonna do a Twitter thing and and hilariously enough they had to attach my name to it so I said okay but it's not my Twitter (laughs) right? It's, it's, it's sort of, stores. it's a bookstore's Twitter. Yeah. And so people say, you know, well, I sent you an email or I sent you a tweet or something and yeah. you never got back to me. I go, well, uh, it's, it's not, not me. me. Yeah. After that, like over the past year and a half, two years, the age of our average customers dropped by probably 20 years. So you asked me earlier about, about eBooks and, and readers and things like that. Well, mm-hmm. some of my customers come in and say, you know, my kid, gave me an e-reader. Um, so, you know, like, I don't know what we're going to, how, what our relationship is going to be like going forward. Within a year, they came in and said, well, either I threw my e-reader into the lake, or I buried it in my closet, because it drove me nuts. Like, you know, this is not what I expect. This is not the experience that I'm hoping it's to completely get. completely different. It's really interesting, because you know, as as the world gets more digitized mm-hmm. you find people losing the ability to do things. So for me one of the really important things about a book is there is there's a spatial aspect to it. It's like Google Maps, right? I think. Okay, hey, there's gonna come a time when people don't know how to get from point A to point B.
0: I think it's already happened. People literally rely on it to go two minutes.
2: Yeah, well no, you know, and I think what is posited as a connection in a lot of ways is really disconnection
0: oh i love that that is so true i'm curious to see how it evolves as people's attention spans are gone because of
2: well that's for me that was always the thing people say you know are you worried about the about the sort of long-term viability of the book and i would say i'm more concerned about the attention span because who benefits? By a decreased attention span, populist governments, banks, repressive governments.
0: Because we live in a productivity culture. Everybody feels if they're reading a book, then they're wasting time not being productive on their work. So it's almost become, there's a guilty feeling associated with reading because it's a leisure activity. People don't give themselves that time anymore. How often do you read?
2: Oh, I can I can never stop reading. You know, like there's this thing on Netflix, and I go, "Sorry, I don't know anything about Netflix." So you don't watch Netflix? No, No. I don't have a tele. I lost my television in 1981 in the middle of the World Series. It broke, and I thought, "Oh no!" And then I thought, "Eh." "Yeah." You know what? So all my kids grew up without a television, and they all read. All my kids read.
0: That's so amazing. That's a gift that you've given them. Yeah, I
2: I mean, for me, it's for me. I feel guilty when I'm not reading.
0: Going back to your bookstore. It is known as Toronto's most beautiful bookstore. And there's the saying, don't judge a book by its cover. How important of a role do aesthetics play in having an eye-catching bookstore and an eye-catching cover?
2: When we decided to open the bookstore, we said we wanted to open the most beautiful bookstore that we could possibly open. Talked to three separate designers, and only one of them used the word energy. And so we hired her. So aesthetics mattered to me, but energy mattered way more. If you don't think you understand energy, then I ask you if you've ever gone into a store, like a retail store, and left very soon after because you didn't feel right. You know, like you go into a store and think, "Ah, you know what, I'm, I'm leaving here. It has nothing to do with the product mix. It has nothing to do with the way it looks. It has everything to do with energy. When people come in here, they can see every, almost every corner of our store. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they have to go into a place where they don't see what, where the end of it is. Right. Right? So for me, that's really important. What we really want to make sure is that it's, it has good energy, that it's calm. So you come in here, chill. Like, I am required... slow down a little bit when I come through here this is a calm place this is a place like I come in here every day and I think you know what it's nice in here it's good
0: when I walked in I felt kind of like a relief like ah I can breathe
2: now in terms of what a book looks like individually our job is to make sure that every cover is displayed to its best advantage so, you know, if you've got a crappy cover on your book,
1: yeah.
2: we'll put it between two books that are really striking. <laughs> I had an author come in one time and yell at me, said, you know, like, you know, my book's really important and it's not even in your store. And I said, well, actually, you walked right past it. It's right up front and the cover on your book is so pathetic that you didn't even see it. Mm-hmm. If you read the book by Margaret Atwood, the most important thing is to put Margaret Atwood in big letters. Yeah right like it doesn't really matter what else is on there because that is your selling point Mm -hmm. right if we're looking at fiction for example or or non-fiction say okay let's put this book and this book and this book and this book here so that each one of those books stands out individually
0: yeah I'm really curious because it's a good opportunity to ask you from the booksellers perspective what is the process like how do you choose how to stock the bookstore do you have big five publishers that come to you, smaller
1: publishers?
2: We do have publishers, and, and most of the publishers put together uh, a listing of their books, their new books. Mm-hmm. And they used to be in actually printed catalogs. So you know it was very interesting, because you could judge, looking at the catalog, what the publisher's expectations were. If a book had a full page then the publisher had already invested a certain amount in that book.
1: Gotcha.
2: And you knew that they were going to invest some more. Yeah. So he's say, this is an important book for us. You know, we've already spent a lot of money, so we're going to do everything we can to make sure we get that money back. And for me, I always go to the back of the catalog where there'd be like 18 books on the page because yeah. those are the ones that, that made a difference to me. Mm-hmm. Right, the books that had a full page, You know, they were going to be in Indigo. They were going to be everywhere. Well, now a lot of those catalogs have gone the way of the Dodo, and it's all digitized. You know, the publishers say, okay, here's our new books. And they give everything a full page because they can. The longer you stay in business, the better sense you have of what will sell. sell. You know, you try to maintain a, a pretty good relationship with, the people who work in the publishing uh-huh. firms. Yeah. So, that's sales reps for us in a lot of cases it's publicists because we do a lot of events. Publishers spend a lot of time now trying to reach out to the people who work in bookstores. So, mm-hmm. so the big publishers will have like an Indigo night and they'll invite the people who work on the floor at Indigo. But I mean the other thing is I've already told you that we're going to carry your book because better that you and I have a relationship because you're a writer. Yeah. And, uh, and like, you know, I'm probably not even going to read your book because, <laughs> no, no, because I think, okay, like, we have this relationship. The last thing I want is for there to be some kind of potential criticism that I might have about your book ah. that would get in between you and me and me doing my best to sell your book.
1: That's
0: okay. I need t- tough skin. If you don't like it, it's okay. <laughs> that's the thing with reading it's so subjective to everybody's taste even your mood while you're reading it it can change the way you look at it and even for my own book I know I reread it now yeah there's no more changing it and there's stuff I would change yeah it's an endless process
2: right but but you know like who has the most influence on the books you read people you trust
0: yes and you're a trustworthy source that people. well you want
2: to maintain that so so you know from the time I've been in the book business for me it's about long-term relationships, yeah. say, like I said, to people, okay, you know what, this is, it, this is a really good book, but I'm not sure if you're going to like it.
0: What are you currently reading?
2: Oh, I'm reading a book by a guy named Chuck Wendig
1: okay.
2: that's coming out in July, and it's a, it's a science fiction book, right. and it's, it looks like it's about 800 pages long. I'm liking it more than I thought I was going to like it. I read, uh, I'm reading a book called Moneyland by this guy named Bulo, Oliver Bulo, mm-hmm. and that's going to be published in North America sometime this spring, May, and it's about how money is siphoned off from nations and institutions. For example, you know, the president of Nigeria has like 40 billion dollars, mm-hmm. well a lot of that is invested in England and the United States. and other places. So so that would only happen with their uh, sort of at least turning a blind eye, if not actually aiding and abetting what? that kleptocracy. So that's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. How many books do you typically read at a time?
2: I try to have at least one fiction and one nonfiction on the go. But it's not unusual for me to have three or four.
0: What is the most memorable event or thing that has happened in this bookstore?
2: At one point, Oliver Sacks was here. And my son, Yates, who was now in his 20s, uh, was young. And he'd read Oliver Sacks' book called Uncle Tungsten, mm-hmm. which is an absolutely fantastic. It was a wonderful book. and Oliver Sacks, very unusual man. And he was here. And I asked my son and my wife, Lynn, to come and Yates. And so Yates got to meet Oliver Sacks. And Oliver Sacks signed. Uh, he asked the what his favorite element was, mm-hmm. and whatever it was, and Oliver Sacks did something about that element in the store, and then he signed the book um, with the atomic number of tungsten. So that was pretty cool. I mean, in a lot of cases, it's more little things. I got to, uh, I got to interview Don DeLillo at the Toronto Public Library, cool. um, who's been one of my heroes, like really probably my favorite writer of contemporary times. And what I liked best about it was there was no photography and no recording. So if you were there, you were there. And if you weren't, too yeah. bad. Yeah, but for me, you know, I mean, I get I get excited every day. A book will come in and I'll go, Oh, look at that so, <laughs>
0: Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> well they say the precursor to being a good writer is being a voracious reader. Have you ever thought about writing a book?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I regret a little bit that I didn't keep a diary because I would have been able to write a book about, about interactions with authors. But that's the only thing. I, you know, At one point, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write novels and things like that. But, mm-hmm. but I had um, no patience and no imagination. So it wasn't really going to happen.
0: What does the future hold for Ben McNally books and Ben McNally the person?
2: Well, I'm getting pretty old my son Rupert you know gradually I'm thinking that he's gonna assume more and more responsibility going forward you know I tell people it's great I'm I've already started my move towards retirement I've got it down to seven days a week now so <laughs> but yeah I, you know at some point I would like to uh, I'd like to kind of kick back a little bit and spend some more time reading I do like that interaction with customers you know you talk to people who say you know oh, I got so tired of retail I couldn't stand it anymore I'm never going to get tired of retail. For me I love that that interaction with people. I love what I do. I you know, I look forward to coming to work every day. The other thing is that you start to you start to realize that you have a certain civic responsibility. And you know like I think I think that what we do is really important. I think it's really important not for me personally and you know not to be too grandiose in what I think about our significance. But I think what we do is really important both culturally and commercially. Like I think I think it's really important that there be a viable voice, a viable place for those voices that we were talking about earlier.
0: Before we close, I have a rapid fire. Yes. Can you just say first thing that comes to your mind.
2: Okay. Are you ready? Yeah.
0: Hardcover or paperback? Hardcover. Physical books or ebooks?
2: Physical books.
0: JK Rowling or J. R. R. Tolkien?
2: Hi. Hi. No, let me tell you why. Tolkien really, really had his thumb on a culture. But when people ask me about the future of the book, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I say J.K. Rowling. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember my kids, my daughter one time saying to me, you know, like, there's going to come a time when people don't have to wait a year for every book. Like, can you imagine? Like, people starting out now can read all four in a row. I know. I think J.K. Rowling is... Is a huge boon to culture in general. And I love those books. They are so well constructed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there are things in book one that don't actually fruit until book six. Like, yeah. what, what kind of thinking that entailed is almost incomprehensible to me.
0: It boggles my mind.
2: Yeah, me too. Okay, sorry.
0: No, that's perfect. I, uh, I could talk about Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling forever. Drink of choice while reading. Coffee. Favorite author?
2: Joseph Conrad.
0: Favorite genre? None. None? No. Like it all? Yeah. Best book of all time?
2: The Master and Margarita.
0: Oh, i got to read that one. Favorite place to read?
2: Lying on a chaise Long in Muskoka. Maybe that might be my favorite.
1: Oh, I love that. In the sun. In the sun. Coffee. With no clothes on. Yeah, that's
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect place to end there. That's right. No kidding. And before we close, can you tell us about your next Books and Brunch event? It's February 3rd. Yep. King Eddie. Yep. King Edward Hotel here in Toronto.
2: Yep. 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, four authors who are in the Rick Smith, who's written an updated version of uh, Slow Death by Rubber Duck, uh, and Hui has written a book called uh, Chop Suey Nation about about the spread of Chinese restaurants across Canada before foodism. There was never a town without a Chinese restaurant. Right. It's pretty interesting when you think about it. Uh, Cecil Foster, who's written a book called They Call Me George, which is a book about black porters on the railways. And Jennifer Robson, who's written a novel called The Gown, which is a, actually a pretty interesting book about about a woman who discovers in her home a connection to the gown that Queen Elizabeth the first or Queen Elizabeth the second war when she got married
0: well so. they'll all four be there
2: they'll all be there and they each talk for 10 or 15 minutes and mm-hmm. you know so we serve breakfast at 10 o'clock and that's what the ticket price is for your breakfast and then each of the authors talks for 10 15 minutes and then they sign books afterwards so Perfect.
0: and you can buy tickets online on your website
2: you can buy tickets through Eventbrite the uh, the details are on our website and then on March the 4th we have the shortlisted authors for the Charles Taylor prize all five of them. And you can see those on Charles Taylor Prize.
0: And you have events every month, so just check. Yep. And In Her Voice is another one where you're supporting emerging female authors. Yeah, and,
2: and you know, we have a festival, an In Her Voice festival in June. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we, we have a few things going on.
0: And then you can stop in any time at the That's bookstore right. The I, I do the
2: old one-on-one. That's yeah, right. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been amazing.
2: <laughs> thank you. You see, your hands are cold. I'm, I told you it was cool know, in here, right? Yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> awesome.
2: Great. <laughs> Hi, Farley.
1: You never sit down with me. I
0: know. I got him into it. You
2: must be really special. (laughs) Can't you tell? Thank you.
0: That's it for today's chapter of the Word Weaver podcast. And although you might have heard his stance on social media, you can absolutely find Ben McNally Books on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Ben McNally Books or their website, ben benmcnallybooks.com. On there, you will have access to all of their events, including the monthly Books and Brunch, In Her Voice, and also they list their carefully curated new and noteworthy selections of books. So if you're looking for inspiration of what to read next, definitely, definitely check it out. If you like what you heard today on the podcast, have a topic recommendation, or any comment at all, be sure to leave them as a review on iTunes or on Instagram at wordweaverpodcast. As always, today's show notes are available at louiseclairjohnson.com slash podcast. Until next time.
1: I hate away with words for a while.